Welcome to the No Nonsense Agile Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And I'm Dave Farley. Hi, Dave. Thanks for coming on. We want to talk to you about continuous delivery, but let's get you to introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you and what's your experience and what do you do? Sure. So these days I'm an independent consultant who advises large companies in complicated circumstances, how to improve their software engineering practices with continuous delivery. I'm one of the authors of the book called Continuous Delivery that popularized the idea along with Jez Humble. I spent my career writing software, building systems of all different kinds. I worked on hardware-based systems. I used to work for computer manufacturers doing operating system level stuff and later did very high performance, complicated trading systems building exchanges and leading teams to do that. So I'm very opinionated on what it takes to do great software development and good software engineering in the hyper agile way that is defined by continuous delivery. So tell us what is continuous delivery? My favorite definition for continuous delivery is working in a way so that a software is always in a releasable state. And really what that is about is trying to establish fast, high quality feedback so that we can make decisions based on the reality of our systems rather than on our guesses about the reality of our systems. So by working to make sure that our software is always releasable, we're being more definitive. If it's releasable, then there's nothing more that we've got to do before we're ready to release. I think that my minimum definition for continuous delivery is that you need to achieve that releasability at least once per day, but preferably multiple times per day. That sounds tough and sometimes it is, but it's achievable at surprising levels of complexity and scale. How do you do that? Largely by applying a scientific, lean, agile approach to eliminating work and automating nearly everything. So version control and automation are a cornerstone of being able to achieve that, but they're just the tools that allow us to get there. The goal is to get that picture of releasability. We'll optimize, we'll do very high levels of automated testing of various kinds and optimize the hell out of those to try and make sure that we get that picture on a reliable basis. One of my formative experiences was to build one of the world's highest performance financial exchanges. We had a fairly big, complicated system at the cutting edge of software performance. We were doing millions of transactions a second. We were testing that, including performance testing, scalability testing, resilience, security, and regulatory compliance, test-driven development style, unit tests, acceptance tests, data migration tests, all of those things. We were doing that and we could get an answer in 57 minutes to all of those. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So is continuous delivery the same as DevOps? I think it's a bigger thing. I'm sometimes introduced as one of the fathers of DevOps. It happened roughly at the same time. Continuous delivery was slightly in the lead in terms of timing. The teams that were practicing it and talking about it publicly was slightly ahead of the DevOps group. We were coming at the same thing, but from two different directions. DevOps largely grew out of operations and needing to bridge the gap between developments and operations. Continuous delivery largely came from developers needing to be able to achieve this releasability more frequently, but both of them hit the boundary between development and ops and needed to break it down. 
I prefer the nomenclature and language around continuous delivery. I think it's broader in scope than the DevOps language, but I think that we're allies in a common cause. And I don't think that there's any DevOps practices that are wrong or mistaken. I'm a close enough ally to be able to be critical about it. So my criticism of DevOps is not really about the approach or the program or any of those kinds of things. I just don't like the word. I don't think it's a very good description of what it is that we're talking about when we describe DevOps. It's not about the relationship between Dev and Ops. That's not enough. You need the relationship between the business, security, testing, developments, everybody. And the outcome that we're all trying to achieve is the continuous delivery of valuable software into the hands of users. DevOps is just one of the mechanisms that allows us to achieve the continuous delivery of valuable ideas into the hands of our users. So I think of continuous delivery as being the broader concept, but in terms of practice, the practicalities of it, we're talking about the same stuff. I see a lot of similarities with XP, which was my introduction to Agile. Is that fair? I do too. I think that continuous delivery, as I describe it, is second generation XP. I was an earlier adopter of extreme programming as well, and was doing that for some time. I worked for a consultancy called ThoughtWorks at the time when I started working on the continuous delivery book. And at ThoughtWorks, we were starting to push the boundaries of XP in bigger projects and continuous delivery was the outcome from that. And so I think it's Gen 2 extreme programming is a reasonable description of what it is that we're talking about. The only thing that I would quibble about in extreme programming is that I think the idea of metaphor when Kent was talking about design wasn't good enough. The rest of it is just seminal work. And I, I've been pointing people to go back and reread the extreme programming book in recent months on my YouTube channel. I've had younger people who missed it the first time around going and reading it and going, oh, wow, we get it now because it's still a fantastic piece of work and one of the best descriptions of how to be really agile, I think. Yeah, I agree. I really like XP. So if we were talking to a CEO, how would you make the business case for continuous delivery? What would you say? This is one of the reasons why I prefer the language. If I'm talking to a CEO, particularly a non-technical CEO, I say, what you'd really like is to be able to have an idea and get that idea continuously out into the hands of your users so that you can figure out whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And you'd like to be able to do that all of the time continuously. That's continuous delivery. So that's my sales pitch. And then I can start pointing to things like the Dora reports and so on, where we've got evidence that show that if you do this, your company makes more money, your staff are happier, you are able to recruit more talented, more experienced people because they like working in these kinds of environments. You produce higher quality software more quickly. My tagline for my business is better software faster because that's what the data says we're able to do. So I've heard the idea of multiple releases a day. And for me, that infers that we're doing micro changes and then pushing them out. Is that how we do it? Is that how we achieve that scale of pushing lots of changes every day? There's two things in there in continuous delivery circles, we differentiate between continuous delivery and continuous deployment. Continuous delivery is working so that our software is always releasable. You can do that and not release it for months, but there are downsides to working that way. But what it gives you is fantastic clarity on the technical quality of the work that you're producing. 
What it doesn't tell you is whether you're building the right things. It doesn't tell you whether you're building stuff that users like, and you're not getting real empirical learning from production. And you're taking risks because you're building up inventory that you're not releasing. Continuous deployment is taking that continuous delivery practice. And if our deployment pipeline says everything's cool, we push it into production. And then you get to Amazon releasing change into production every 11.2 seconds. And that gives you fantastic feedback on the quality of your work. If we want feedback on what it is that we're doing, then we need continuous integration. We were just talking about extreme programming, which was built really on the idea of continuous integration. Continuous integration is absolutely a cornerstone of continuous delivery. I get a little bit grumpy about people using the term CICD because that's the same to me as saying CI, CI, CD, because CD is built on CI. You can't have CD without CI. So it's just a bit crazy. So continuous integration is at the heart of this. And the definition of continuous integration say that you merge your changes together at least once a day. So if you're working in that way, either you've organized your work. So each feature is less than a day's amount of work, that's nice. Or you organize your work so you're happy to make changes that don't yet add up to a feature and still release them into production. So yes, we organize our work about lots of little micro changes and allow ourselves the freedom to be able to grow those into bigger features over longer periods of time. There is an argument that releasing code to users is not a very efficient way to get feedback. A better way to get feedback is to use the techniques of the lean startup movement by doing continuous discovery of customer needs through mock-ups and getting people in to see things, which is going to cost you 10% of developing it and putting it out to people. Should we be doing that instead? I don't think it's instead. My definition of engineering is a practical application of scientific reasoning to solving problems. It just works better than anything else. If you want to be able to do some internal research, that's absolutely fine. But continuous delivery gives you a broader platform on which to conduct that research. If we are working so that our software is always in a releasable state, that gives you almost magical ability to try out any idea, to experiment with it quickly and efficiently. There's a story from Amazon that one day, one of the engineers went to his boss and said, I've got a great idea. I was at the supermarket the other day and realized that when I'm queuing up to pay for things, there's all these other things, sweets and batteries and things like those that make me want to buy extra stuff. We should do that when you go to checkout. And his boss said, no, we're not going to do that. We're just going to annoy our users. So this engineer thought, I still think that's a good idea. So he did an experiment and he just released some code that did exactly that to a small segment of Amazon's customer base. So he could get the data and then he went back to his boss. That's a completely lean startup kind of idea. When we're doing lots and lots of small releases, how do we know which of those releases are the one that's giving us the good behaviors and which ones we can get rid of? If we start thinking about this from a scientific rational point of view, what we're talking about is controlling the variables in our experiments. How do you isolate your experiment so you can detect the signal that your experiment is sending you? try to think in terms of the signals that we'd like to collect from our changes at the start, as part of building those changes, that starts you thinking, how, how do I 
disambiguate the signals that I'm getting from changing the system from these other things. So we're looking at statistics and trends and those sorts of things. But thinking that way is going to do a better job than not, even though it's a bit messy, still better than the alternative. I've been reviewing a book recently that's coming out on reliability engineering. And one of the things in SRE is identifying service level indicators and setting service level objectives. So you can say for this change, this is the variable that I'm expected to move. So I'm going to track that variable. And this is the value of that variable that I'd like to see. It could be uptime. It could be throughput. It could be latency. It could be customer signup. It could be retention. It could be anything. Netflix use a similar thing. Each change comes with what they call a canary index, which is essentially the criteria by which you measure success for this change. The trouble is what happens if the results of one experiment bump into another, and that's when you try to figure out how best you control that. We talked to Marty Kagan recently, and he's well known for being a product development consultant in Silicon Valley, and he sees Agile, and I think he would say continuous delivery, as being a delivery mechanism, not a discovery mechanism, and that in order to discover customer needs, we need to do it much more through user experience, design and testing. What do you think about that? Well, being blunt, I think he doesn't understand what continuous delivery is. Continuous delivery is about optimizing the process from idea to valuable software in the hands of our users. How do you know that? You gather feedback, you gather the learnings, you, you gather the signals that we've just been talking about from production about whether this is actually giving the users the value that you intend it to be, and you work on the basis of that feedback. That means that the kind of product outcome centered learning that's essential to be able to build great products is built into the process. Doesn't mean it's automatic. Doesn't mean it doesn't rely on human beings being clever. Of course it still does, but we collect the data. We do the experiment. We validate whether our ideas are landing with our users or not in ways that we predict before we get there. There's a common misreading of what continuous delivery is about, which is continuous delivery just means continuously deploying things into production. And it's much, much more than that. Okay. I see you talk about test-driven development a lot. And I'm wondering if you could just explain to people a bit more about what test-driven development is. Sure. To me, it's a foundational practice for continuous delivery. I think that test-driven development is one of the few technical practices that we can point to that actually demonstrably improves the chances of success for development. And I think it does it for some really important and subtle reasons. Test-driven development is not really about testing. It's more about design. And the way that I would differentiate test-driven development from just unit testing, for example, is that automated testing is about, after the fact, just verifying that the code does things that you want it to, or, or that it works. Test-driven development is specifically driving development from tests. So we start by creating a mini automated executable specification for what the outcome from our code should be. And then we develop some code to meet that specification. It's best described in three ways, red, green refactor. 
So red, we're going to write a test, run it, see it fail. Green, we're going to do the minimum amount of work to make the test pass. Refactor, we're going to make both the test and the code beautiful, excellent, more generic, expressive, while we're in the stable state and having the protection of a passing test. The red and the refactor state are the most important. The green's just tactical, really, although that's the thing that makes the test pass in the first place. That's the tactical step. So the red state, we're focused almost entirely on doing outside-in design for the stuff that we're working on. I have a training course available online that was just released yesterday called TDD and BDD Design Through Testing. But the way in which I teach it is that during red, when we're writing a test, our objective is to design our code from the perspective of a consumer of our code. Even if that consumer is us in a few minutes time, we're going to test from the outside in. So that means that we're going to write the test before we've got any code. We're going to focus the test on the visible outcomes in our code, not the internal implementation of our code, which ends up with our test not being too tightly coupled to the code. You have to be crazy not to get some benefit from this way of working. I would argue that there are five properties of managing complexity in code that are hallmarks of high quality code. High quality code is modular, cohesive, good separation of concerns. It's got lines of abstraction in it and it's loosely coupled. What makes code testable? Well, needs to be modular, needs to be cohesive, needs to have good separation of concerns, needs to have good lines of abstraction and needs to be relatively loosely coupled. So the qualities in code that we value as markers of high quality are the qualities that test-driven development naturally amplifies through the process of writing code that way. So this is a fantastic tool. Test-driven development amplifies the talent of software developers. It makes crap software developers better, and it makes great software developers greater. And there's not much that we can point to that does that. There's very little that does the equivalent of that in software. The difference between functional programming and OO programming or procedural programming, it has different benefits in different ways, but it doesn't do that to the same degree. So I think testing development is almost unique in being able to deliver that to us. So for people going through universities, are they taught TDD? Not enough. There's lots of things that universities don't teach. Software engineers, that was one of the inspirations between my modern software engineering book. I don't think that we've got a definition of what good means in terms of software engineering or software development. I am a card-carrying agilista. I've been a long-time agile practitioner and believer. But one of the downfalls of agile thinking, one of the consequences of talking about autonomy, is everybody thinks that they've got a veto on everything and everybody thinks that they've got to discover everything from scratch for themselves. And there's a, a degree to which you want that to be true because autonomy is important. And there's a big cost to that as well, because one of the downsides is that we don't learn as an industry. We don't learn. We are still agonizing over the same problems that people were talking about and to some degree solved in the 1960s. Yeah. I do most of my work in the data and analytics space, not the software engineering space. But there's very little tooling in test-driven development. Absolutely. I did a video on data on my YouTube channel. There's some horrendous statistics, particularly in the field of machine learning. There's something like 95% of machine learning projects never make it into production. And part of the reason for that is because they don't apply basic software engineering principles. They don't version control things. 
they write stuff in non-version controlled Jupyter notebooks all over the place and not even the basics of thinking about code as something that's important and careful to maintain and the data that's associated with it. So these are the lessons that we learned a long time ago. And there are some fundamental practices here. It doesn't really matter what it is that you're dealing with. If you're dealing with computers and software in any form, these things matter. These things are important to think about to some degree. And we're really bad at learning those kinds of lessons and applying them in different areas. But some of them are profoundly important. If TDD is so good, why don't more people use it? Lots of people do, and they don't talk about it, which is a shame. I think one of the reasons is it's hard, but I think it's hard in an interesting way. It's not hard because TDD is hard. It's hard because software design is hard. And what TDD forces you to do is to take a design-centered approach to thinking about software development. Part of my job is to go and see other people's code and working environments and so on. So I, I see quite a lot of projects and my observation is not that design is on the whole poor. It's that on the whole, it doesn't exist. On the whole, most software projects aren't really designed at all. And so if you apply some relatively basic principles for design, then it's better. But going back to what Shane was saying, design isn't really taught in universities either. And it's what my book, Modern Software Engineering is about, is to try and establish some principles by which we could measure the effectiveness of design and use those across the board, whatever the software that we're doing, some principles about how to work and how to understand what's the difference between a good design and a bad design. Because if we could do that, then we could start saying, well, that's bad and this is good. Therefore, let's do more of these kinds of things. Test-driven development tends to push you in the direction of making design front and center in the software development process. So it's harder. I, I had a funny experience while writing my book. I wanted to write some code that was so bad that I could critique it and point out all of the reasons why it was terrible. And I started off the way that I always start off writing code by doing test-driven development. And I couldn't write code that was that bad. It was impossible to write it that bad as I needed to be in the example and do test-driven development. So I had to stop doing test-driven development to write code that was so badly structured. That's telling, that's saying something important right there. What test-driven development surfaces is the truth of software. Software is more difficult than it looks. Learning the basic syntax of a programming language is easy. Learning how to write software is hard. And it's hard because design is hard. And it's hard because we are dealing with some complex ideas at its root. Even if we're writing some kind of highly abstract low-code system, we're usually a few small steps away from some really quite deep, complex ideas like concurrency and coupling and dependency management and those sorts. So if you're doing test-driven development, do you still need testers in your team? It depends on the software project. My preference is to work with professional testers because they have a different kind of mindset, but it just changed the testing role. I've got quite a nice video that's quite popular on the role of QA in continuous delivery and, and agile practices. So the first thing to say is you don't defer the responsibility for testing to testers. That's not their job. If we want to build quality systems, we have to build quality into the system, not inspect it in as an afterthought sometime later. So we want to bring the testing function up front uh, and center, which is what TDD is really about. 
But having that informed by people with a testing mindset is valuable and having people with a testing mindset doing exploratory testing, surfing the wave of changes in our system to up the quality from a more subjective perspective, the kinds of things that we're probably never going to write an automated test to evaluate is valuable. Where I think that manual testing is a big mistake is using it for regression testing. I don't think that we should use manual testing for any regression testing. We should automate all of that stuff and use human beings for what they're good at, which is the much more subjective, insightful viewpoint of the software. We see product people talk about engaging with the customer early, getting feedback before we even start coding, before we start delivery. If we're going to do early experimentation with customers to see what's worth investing in, then people with a testing skill set need to move into the UX team. Actually having the testing skills in there to challenge, how would we know when we deliver, whether we achieve that? Not, as you said, at the end when they're inspecting, they should be in front right at the beginning. I think testers as gatekeepers is a complete anti-pattern. So we'd like the people on the team to be working deeply collaboratively alongside one another and come to a finish at the same time. You don't want to build in mini waterfalls, even within the scope of a, an iteration or a sprint or something. You want people to be working on the same stuff together collaboratively whenever they can. I'm skeptical of UX because if you're not careful, you just build in another silo ahead of the design of the system. I've had the privilege of working on some world-class continuous delivery teams. And one of the predictors of success is that they have all of the skills that they need to make their decisions inside the team. SpaceX are, are a very heavy proponent of continuous delivery and test-driven development. They are updating rockets with new versions of software 45 minutes before a launch. Rockets with people on them. This is a, a higher quality way of working. This is not lower quality. This is not less safe. This is better, a higher quality, lower risk way of working. And in order to do that, you can't have somebody that's some kind of gate that's slowing things down. You need to be building the quality into the process and into the system. You want to avoid any barriers in that process, which means having small groups of people who have all of the skills necessary to do that job. We're going to automate all of the regression testing. We're going to re automate all of the evaluation that says, does the system work and does it do the job that we want it to do? And is it fast enough and scalable? We're going to automate all of that stuff. So we don't have to worry about that. That's going to be covered with automated testing. So what's left for human beings? Is it nice to use? Is the usability of the system effective enough that it paints pictures in my head that allow me to extrapolate and think where I'm going to go next and navigate my way around it? That's the stuff that it's really hard to imagine how you would write an automated test for that without presupposing the answer. But human beings are really good at doing that. And you want people to be doing that while the software is being developed, not after it's finished. The other advantage that having professional testers on a team brings is you want them in the conversations as you're kicking off a new piece of work, you pull the card off your Kanban or whatever to start work on it. You get together with somebody that understands the problem, the product owner, maybe the developers and the testers are going to work on it. And you all have a conversation and it's like, how are we going to test this? What's our experiment? What are the things that we should be measuring to understand whether this is working or not? What things should we look out for? At what points during the development can you, the tester, take a look and see whether this is nice to use or not while it's being developed, not after it's finished. My experience of seeing QA people go through this transition is that they love it. It's a much more fulfilling, enriching job than being a test monkey driven by somebody else's script. We get rid of that drudgery and replace it with the creative, interesting stuff.
of figuring out how this can go wrong. That's real engineering. So you talked before about running your release every hour or so. Are we releasing into production half-finished code or code that's in progress? And are we saying that you should always merge into the main trunk? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm suggesting. So the idea of continuous integrations as a starting point is that we evaluate all of our changes together as a team at least once per day. The commonest way of working up is to work on feature branches and isolate changes and you merge them together once you think the feature's complete. The downside of that is that if everybody's working on their own feature branch, even if they're pulling the changes from trunk and running tests on their feature branch, that's not the truth. They're not integrating their changes with the changes of their teammates that's also living disconnected on somebody else's feature branch. Continuous integration is about solving that problem and reducing that risk. So you integrate all of the code together into some shared notion of the truth at least once per day, and ideally much more frequently than that. So that's our objective. So that's what continuous integration says. And the data from the Dora report, State of DevOps, Accelerate book, and so on, says that teams that practice continuous integration, they integrate their changes at least once per day, have significantly higher scores on stability and throughput than teams that don't. So this is an imperative for us. This isn't my personal preference or personal choice. That's just what data says works better. So if that's what works better, then we need to optimize to do that. The consequence of that in a continuous delivery world, when we are not only just integrating our changes together, but also working so that they're releasable, is that yes, I must be willing to be able to make a change to the code that doesn't yet add up to a complete feature but still have that released into production. And there are some techniques that we can use to make that safe. But that principle, yes, that's the thing that you buy into with genuine continuous delivery. And just to point out, this is what SpaceX and Tesla and Google and Facebook do. So this isn't some kind of crazy thing that only small nutcases like me do. This is what some of the best engineering teams in the world this is the practice that they employ. Yeah. So what are the techniques that you can use to keep your code safe while deploying half-finished things into production on the main branch? There are three that I talk about, and I prefer to apply them in this order. So first, there's dark launching, which is a fancy term for something that's really simple. So the idea is that you don't connect up the code that you're working on. So you could imagine writing some new service and the service doesn't talk to other parts of the system. Or you can imagine you're going to be adding something to the user interface, but you build it from the back first. So until the features are available, you don't wire up the, the new part of the user interface. That's easy. So it's there, it's in production. You can learn from it in production, but users can't access it yet. But that's the first and the easiest one to do. The next one is something called branch by abstraction, where you can use design to isolate different parts of the, the system, and then you can channel information to the old version, which is doing the real work and the new version. So you can see what's going on, or you can switch them in and out between each other. That's a useful tool. And the last one, which is the one that nearly everybody's heard of is feature flags, which is a software switch where you can under software control, decide which version of the system you're going to use. I recommend them in that order because that's an order of increasing risk. The feature flags is slightly more risky than the other approaches, because the problem with feature flags is what do you test? 
do you test it with the flag turned off or with it turned on? The obvious answer to that is, well, with both, because might flip the switch. So you want to test both. And that's fine as long as you've got a small number of featured flags. But if you've got hundreds or thousands of feature flags, you've just broken your testing surface area. You can't test all of the bats. And so that's a risk for safety critical systems, some of which are the kinds of things that I work on. That's too risky for me. So I, I'm either going to really limit the number of feature flags that I'm going to sustain or not use them at all. So the concept of the Canary release then is a form of feature flag that's saying for this subset of users, we're going to turn these features on, see what happens for everybody else. We're not going to turn it on and hope we haven't broken it. Exactly. And you can make that as sophisticated or as not as you like. The idea of a Canary release is you're going to deploy stuff first to places that are less risky. So one of the things that some of the big web shops do, Netflix in particular, do this is they'll release changes first to data centers that are in the middle of the night. And then as time goes on using their canary indexes, they wait to see whether to leave it in production or not. So in modern software engineering, you talked about reversible decisions. Could you explain what you mean? I think that every decision that we make, we should make on the assumption that we're probably wrong. And therefore we need to be able to be skeptical about our own decisions and working away that allows us to recover from them if they are wrong or enhance them if we figure out that's the best way forward. I talk about this in terms of working incrementally. It's what I mean by taking a scientific, rational approach to doing software development. Philosophers say that the foundational ideas of science was to assume that we could be wrong. Anybody can be wrong. The smartest person in the world, however great they are, they're probably wrong. Science works on that skeptical approach. And I think that we must do the same. Software is complex enough that however good you are, you're probably wrong. You're probably guessing wrong about what it is that your users want. You're probably guessing wrong about what your design should be to fulfill that. You're probably guessing wrong about whether it's fast enough or scalable enough. So we need to work in ways that allow us to be wrong and safely with control, recover from that when we are. I saw a a beautiful presentation a few years ago about aviation safety and how it had evolved over time. The presentation was from the chief pilot of Lufthansa, and he did an analysis of the world's worst aviation disaster and described how that happened and talked about all of the human processes and technical processes that failed and resulted with two jumbo jets crashing into each other on a runway in Tenerife. But in 2017, the equivalent of two thirds of the planet's population flew on commercial airliners and not one person died on a commercial airliner that year. So the safety of aircraft is fantastic. But as he said, it was written in blood to get to that point, disaster after disaster after disaster happened. And they learned from every disaster. And every time you look with a critical mind at what happened and okay, so how do we stop that happening in future? That's the best that we can do. That's engineering. We don't start off with perfection. If we do start off with some illusory view of perfection, we're just wrong. We do the best that we can based on the information that we have available to us. And then we learn from there. So let's say I'm convinced by this and I want to implement continuous delivery and TDD and trunk based development in my organization. How would I go about it from a change management point of view? 
that's the really tricky question. The problem with continuous delivery, so we know it works, we know that it's better, we know that the world's best software producers use it, we know that it's more effective. The trouble is, it's really difficult to get from you know, where most organizations are to there. It's a paradigm shift, it's a genuine flip in the way in which we think and approach software development. There's usually some low-hanging fruit in organizations to start look at. The agile step has been helpful. So agile works. There's some steps to take it further and to amplify it more. Usually there are organizational pressures that are still a bit old world. So the big warning signs to look at are things that slow down feedback. My simplistic advice is look to aim to optimize for speed of feedback. Try and figure out how to take effort and work out of the process of understanding whether your software is releasable or not. One of the bits of low-hanging fruit to eliminate quickly is manual regression testing. Manual regression testing is slow, expensive, inefficient, and relatively low quality. So we want to get rid of that. I've got some really interesting videos on all sorts of aspects of this on my YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, search for continuous delivery, you'll find it. There's lots of different angles on this about testing, acceptance testing, which is the way that you eliminate manual testing and so on. Stuff about getting outcome-focused requirements rather than technical requirements that is another common problem in big teams and big organizations. There's lots of things to change, and that's the real difficulty. It's not the practice. We can build tests that run fast enough at scales that would stagger you. We can do this for processes and mechanisms and software that is more complicated than you think possible. And people are doing that. It's not that you can't do this in a particular circumstance, but it is challenging because it challenges ideas that we're all familiar and comfortable. That's what I do for a living is try and help people through that transition, but it's a very difficult transition. That's the problem. I, I wish I could bottle it. I'd love to keep talking to you, but we really need to wrap it up. So let's go to summaries. So Shane, what do you got? So again, another great chat. You started off talking about the definition that you use and it's working in a way. So our software is always in a releasable state. If that's our goal, then it forces a whole lot of practice and process and patterns that we need to implement to be able to do that. I like the idea of automating everything. To be able to be in a releasable state, we should look at everything we do and say, can we automate it? Yes, then let's do it. I like the idea of lots of micro features being released, but that they may not be visible. So that's what I heard of as canary releases and feature flags. But I like the way you articulated that actually these three levels. First, look at things like dark launches, where you're actually launching it, it's disconnected. It's running, but nobody can see it. It's not impacting anything. From there, maybe go into branch by abstractions, have two versions and blue green them and see what happens, but testing whether it's working or not. And third option being feature flags or canary releases. So I like that. It's a good technique. I like the idea of TDD and your description of red, green and refactor, where red is actually the design. A green's just getting us there really quickly to say, hey, we're on to the next step and then refactor to get the real work done. And also the idea of building quality in, don't inspect after the fact. So the whole idea that the testing skill is not at the end of the, the trail, they're not the people that we leave to last. So they're not a gatekeeper, I think is the word you used. If you see testers as gatekeepers, it's an anti pat I like the idea that uh, you should assume you're wrong. So you're going to have to roll something back 
So really think about the design of minimizing that blast radius. So when it's wrong, because it will be, we can roll it back because there's no less impacts. And then finally, this idea of optimizing for speed of feedback. How do we get it into the customer's hands as early as possible? So they give us more feedback, which means we can go and do some more work and make it better. And so when I think about continuous delivery and the goal and the way you sell it to a CEO, it's exactly the same words that we use when we talk about agile. It's about how do we deliver things to our customers that have value and be able to iterate and inspect and adapt and change the way we work to make that whole thing better. It's a different bunch of tools and practices and patterns, but it's still agile. Yeah, that's what it's all about. I would add that the thing about continuous delivery being agile, it's absolutely and profoundly an agile practice. I, I call it a hyper agile practice. It's a second generation agile practice. And one of the advantages that continuous delivery offers over some other agile practices, safe and scrum, for example, is that it's hard to cheat. There's no gray here. If you can't get to release once a day, you're not doing continuous delivery yet. There's nowhere to hide in that statement. There's no way of cheating that. You can have stand-ups once a week and call two weeks worth of work as sprints and not deliver anything at the end and say that you're an agile team. It's not true, but you can say it. You can't do that with continuous delivery. And I think that's one of the benefits. Yeah, I think that DevOps and continuous delivery are all part of Agile, but we have a pretty broad perspective on what Agile is. We went through that whole discussion and we didn't talk about Jenkins once or Cucumber or Gherkin. And most of the discussions when I talk to people about DevOps or continuous delivery is they immediately start going to the tools. And it's not about the tools, is it? Not even a little bit. It's weird because it's all about automation, but I don't care about the tools because I can automate it in almost any tools. Yeah. So I have to keep reminding people of that. People who haven't done it before are quite skeptical about it. It's a big effort to write the test first. And why am I even bothering when the testers are going to test it anyway and all that sort of stuff. But when I've seen really good teams working, they're doing it. And it's the teams that are inexperienced and having trouble who are not doing it. I really like the idea of what you said, that it takes your developers to the next level. So if a developer is competent, then they can move up to proficient just by doing this or yeah. proficient to expert potentially. Yeah. That's awesome. That's what I need. Yeah. I'm a little bit skeptical about trunk-based development, maybe because I haven't seen it. I have seen people doing feature flags back in the XP days, and that was good. That worked but I probably need a bit more experience with trunk-based development to be comfortable with it, but I'm keen to, to give it a go. I have a, a lot more I could ask you because it's so interesting. I love it, but we've run out of time. So let's talk about how people can find you, Dave. Sure. You can get me on Twitter at DaveFarley77. I've got a quite successful YouTube channel recently got over a hundred thousand subscribers. We've got videos published every week on all sorts of aspects of the kind of stuff that I've been talking about. Go to YouTube and search for continuous delivery and you'll find it. You can see my business website, which is continuous-delivery.co.uk and my training courses. If you're interested in any of those courses.cd.training. The training courses are video-based and text-based self-study courses. There's a collection of them. They are expert level courses that are very well reviewed. 
and, and they'll do things like teach you TDD, teach you how to build deployment pipelines and talk about the principles of continuous delivery and so on. That's awesome. So thanks for coming on. Much appreciated. Thanks. Nice to talk to you today. Thank you. That was the No Nonsense Agile Podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.